You're listening to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, writer, human rights advocate, and co-founder of the Diversity Movement. On this podcast, I'm talking to trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who share their inspiring stories, lessons learned, and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. Thank you, everyone, for listening. My guest today is Dr. Jen Fry. Jen, thank you so much for being on our show. Would you tell our guests a little about yourself? Yeah, I always tell people I want to intro myself because I feel like it's a little easier to talk about yourself than reading off the bio. Um, I feel like I have a little bit more, little little razzle-dazzle, if you must. I was a college volleyball player, college volleyball coach for about 15 years. I'm from Arizona, so moved to Alabama for college, which really scared my white mom, right? I'm coming from five minutes from the Mexican border to a place where we hear about all of this civil rights turmoil. I had a phenomenal time at Montevello, then decided there I wanted to be a coach. And I was a coach for about 15 years, traveled all over the U.S., uh, was able to play for a national championship when I was at Illinois, just had phenomenal, phenomenal experiences. And when I went and moved to essentially the last school I decided to coach at, I started to see that there was kind of this space between race and sport that wasn't talked about the way I wanted it to be talked about, nor the topic. Mm -hmm. And so with that, I made the decision. I think, you know, the careers of 40 years in one place, I think are gone. We're not going to see that, right? The person who gets the watch, who gets the chair, the whatever it is, the clock, because Mm -hmm. that's gone. People are moving and doing different things. People are jumping careers. You know, before I thought I'd be a college coach for the rest of my life, I would be the person that retires at. 60 years in the game. And I decided to make a career switch. And it was one of the best things I could have done. One of the scariest things. I mean, I think that a lot of times we don't talk about how scary it is to make a career switch, right? To like jump and be like this thing I've only known, the people I've only known, the the support network I've only known. I am leaving all of that to like parachute out and hope my damn parachute even works. That's right? right. Not even like get to the job, but the parachute works. And so I was so lucky and had such a phenomenally supportive group of friends and parents and, and family members. And so I went into the space of talking about DEI and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew it wasn't done the way I wanted it to be done. And so I said, I wanted it to be done with nuance, with context, with uncomfortableness, with authenticity. I want to be myself and do it. I don't want to go work for a company and have to do their thing that doesn't fit who I am or talk about the topics the way I want to. So I decided to leave coaching, went and worked at Duke for a few years to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And it was at that point I decided that I wanted to both get my PhD as well as do my business full time. So I just decided to leave kind of, I guess, my second career of working in academics to then go start my company and get my PhD in geography at the best Big Ten school in ever, Michigan State. Love that. And Jen, tell us, was there a specific situation or experience that said, I'm moving out of coaching and into consulting? No, you know, everyone asked me that. It wasn't like this aha moment. It was more mm-hmm. of this gradual aspect of starting. Because I, I think as coaches, we don't really check in with ourselves mentally and emotionally. We're seeing that with, like, with a lot of the mental health stuff happening around college athletics. Mm-hmm. But I was starting to feel very resentful of coaching. I felt like I was leaving Thursday for a Saturday game and missing four days of life and my friends and doing things. And I was starting to feel resentful being there. 
college coaching is a grind. And with recruiting, if the recruit calls, it doesn't matter where you're at, you need to take that call. Mm -hmm. And so you're in situations where you're out with your friends, your family, you're on vacation, you have to take these calls. And Mm -hmm. the calls might be an hour, two hours if it's a a recruit you want. And I felt like I was just missing out on life. And I think also what the situation was, previously the places I lived in, I didn't really have a life because they were small towns. All that I could do was coach. But when I moved to North Carolina, I now had this friend group and I had people and places I wanted to go. And it was like almost out of touch where people were telling me about the things I could drive to, but I just couldn't go because of my schedule. And Mm -hmm. so I just was feeling really resentful of coaching. And I also started to learn more about myself, identity, kind of the spaces I maybe want to get into. I'm reading, I'm going to webinars. And I'm starting to think like, this is the thing I want to do. And I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. I'm kind of glad I didn't know what I didn't know. Cause maybe I wouldn't have jumped, but like, right. I just, I, I, you know, for me, it was like, I'm starting to get resentful of coaching. I love helping people. And maybe it's the time that I help people just in a different way. And my vehicle changes. Absolutely. Jen, well, let's take a step back and talk about your experience as a collegiate athlete. Can you tell us, you know, what were some of the important lessons that you learned by playing at that level? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that that sticks out to me now in, you know, looking back in hindsight is what it means to be a really good teammate. Hmm. I don't think we talk about that enough. Like we aren't taught what it means to be a really good teammate and value someone over yourself for a bigger picture. Like we don't really talk about that in the workspace in any spaces. And I think that I like, there were times I think back in high school, I was the worst teammate. I see some of the videos and I'm like, Oh God, the 16 year old (laughs) Jen was such a bad teammate. Like it it just, I was so bad. And then thinking about in college, you know, wanting to be captain, but not fully holistically understand what it meant to be a captain, just wanting the title. And so I think, you know, one of the things coming out is what does it mean to be a really good teammate and understanding that maybe your role isn't at the front of the line, but it's at the back cheering for people and supporting mm-hmm. people. You know, I think about at Illinois, I was a volunteer assistant. I was like the lowest of the low on the totem pole. And the head coach then who's at Stanford now, Kevin, he was great with me. And, but also letting me know this is your role within the program. And mm-hmm. I think many times people can't develop to be good teammates because the coaches or whoever is doesn't tell them the role on the program. And, and Kevin Hamley was great at being like, this is going to be your role. This is what we expect. But also this is how your role, even though you might not be on the court is going to help create this amazing culture. And people mm. like aren't really told of how much it can help change a school, change a program. You know, if you're sitting on the bench, you're not doing the things you want. And so I think, you know, being a really good teammate and if you take it to the office setting, what that looks like, and the nuances of it, I think, was a really beneficial lesson. Absolutely. And, you know, you're right. You know, there are so many courses that we take in college about learning how to operate in business. But being a good teammate should be one of those classes and something that, you know, is a competency because it's so important in accomplishing whatever, you know, the organizational goals are. Sometimes you have to take a backseat. And that's, that's good advice for all of us. Well, Jen, tell us, you know, you coach for a long time. What are some of the things that you enjoyed most about that? And then we'll talk about what you're doing now in consulting. But as a coach, what was exciting about that? What kept you in that industry for so long? 
I think it was the fact that you got to help people transform themselves from the person they came in at 18 and 19 to this person that's 21, 22. You know, those years are so critical and the transformation and helping young women figure themselves out at that point. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I mean, I think it was the best thing. Yeah. It wasn't mm-hmm. even the winning part is seeing people develop and building those relationships. So a lot of the people I coach, I, I get to be friends with now and it's like a different level of friendship, right? It's kind of almost like going from having your parents to now your parents are friends. And it, it's very different. I think about my high school coach who now is, is a dear friend of mine. And, you know, I was in high school 25 years ago and I still would call her coach Mo. Like the, the title's there, but like there's that different relationship now that we're both adults. And so I think that's a really cool thing is seeing my athletes having kids and starting families and doing these great things. One of my uh, athletes is Chanel, I think it's Walker Smith or Smith Walker. I can't remember the the hyphen, but she is the team photographer for the Panthers. And she is probably like, if you think of black creatives in college athletics or professional, like her name is at the top. Like she is changing the industry. She was the director of, like content creation for Tennessee football, first black mm-hmm. female in that type of position. So she's doing great. I have another athlete, Nicole Taylor, who like started this club, volleyball club, and is doing it from a very different way in how she treats her athletes. Think about, I have Anna, who is a nurse and how she's right. will ask me, Hey, how do I interact with my patients in these ways? And I get to see some athletes who are doing such phenomenal things. Mm-hmm. And knowing that maybe I had a hand in helping them develop themselves and how they wanted to treat others. But yeah. I mean, don't get twisted. Chanel and her twin sister, Danielle, will tell you, when I coached them, baby, we would go at it. Like, you would think I was a big sister. We would go at Like, you ain't about to walk away from me just mumbling. What you going to say? Right? Like, we had that relationship of, like, you ain't just going to say what you want. But, like, that's also, like, the mutual respect we had of each other that we could be upset with each other. And it's not like this elongate thing like we're going to talk about it and then keep it moving and so I think it's just that relationship building that I really enjoyed because you're helping them I think for coaches they always forget like they're helping us as well and how we look and view it and at people and shift and change so it's, it's just really a beautiful thing that's awesome and that theme of development was a thread right through the coaching career and now into the consulting career you're helping organizations develop through the lens of sports. Can you tell us a little bit more of what you're doing now and the, the type of work that you do with organizations now? Yeah. So I started Gen 5 Talks. And like I said, I wanted to do it authentically and where I saw that there was a whole of stuff that was missing. And so what I do is I try and bring it from the idea of I'm helping you build skills and build capacity. You know, while I understand, I think that there's a place for the moral or heart argument, I think we need to really talk about what it means to look at this from an aspect of skill building. And what it means to say, listen, the way the world is moving now and people are moving, and especially after George Floyd, it maybe showed us that we don't have the skills to talk about these conversations the way we wanted to. And because of that, we have to start being more introspective than we thought. And that's okay. But when you do with that knowledge, because I think many times 
people come at this from a aspect of what is our department doing? What is our university or organization? What is the C-suite? What are all these people doing? Versus what am I doing? What am I doing to change for the better? But also on the other side, what am I doing to cause harm? And people don't think of that. It's like, well, you know, the department, they aren't doing this, this, and this. But you're a white woman. What are you doing with the other white folk to start creating change? You're a white person that is leading a staff of 50. What are you doing to help your staff? And so I think the issue is, is that we tend to keep it very far away from us instead of very proximal. Because when we do this work very proximal, it, it hurts. We start to maybe learn that the people we loved and trust aren't really, weren't really saying or maybe doing the right things. And that also comes from their past of what they learned and the traumas they have. And so we don't realize that maybe we've been looking at this idea of race, not in a way that we want to, but in a way that we are just taught by them. And so then when we're talking about it or not talking about it, it's because of that baggage and trauma of how they really taught us that talking about race is bad. That if you mention anything with identity, it's bad. And so because it's bad, now whenever my athlete or a coworker wants to talk about race, I immediately have this shame and trauma that talking about race is bad. And so when they want to talk to me about a topic, then because it's bad, I haven't even investigated. And this person has a whole other language and verbiage that I have no clue about. Well, now I'm even more uncomfortable and I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling shame. And so because all that, now I definitely want, don't want to talk about this, this topic to them. And then when problems are occurring, we're not retaining people, things are happening. I'm not saying it's a race issue because I've never even really talked about that or even thought in a very nuanced and complex way. I'm just going to immediately push back. And then I'm going to say, right, if you want to talk about race, you're the racist. You're a race baiter because all it is is trying to weaponize words to get me to stop talking about it. Because what I tend to see is like it's almost like a, a 1800s duel. Who's going to say the word racist first? Mm-hmm. Because if I say it first, you can't say it back to me. So uh-huh. what I do is I'm kind of like, okay, I'm hearing race. Well, you're the racist. And so now that I've pulled that trigger, now you're on the defensive. If I'm not racist, and now I've been able to take all of the pressure off of me and onto you. And now I'm going at you. Well, why would you talk about, why would you do this? Blah, blah, blah. And now I've made it that you feel it versus me having to interrogate why I am so guilty, shameful, uncomfortable when I just mentioned identity. Something that we all can see, right? People all be like, I don't see race. Baby, you see me wearing this purple and pink polka dot top, but you can't see the color of my skin? And That's how exactly. they, they've been conditioned to not talk about it and then to equal anyone who does talk about it as being bad. And that's That's what we see a lot. And so my goal is to help people build skills to see, to pull back their layers, to -hmm. see where this starts so that then they can enter into more conversations and do more change. Got it. And then Jen, on that same topic, what are some of the, the questions people ask or some of the challenges people share with you that, they're afraid to speak up about that you help them just navigate through so that they can have those conversations with, you know, a little bit more confidence and and a little bit more context to do those conversations. Right. Very rarely do I do a workshop that doesn't have people sharing with each other. Very, like very, very, very rare. Like 
I don't even think there's any time I've spoken to anyone that people aren't sharing at least once with each other. That that just doesn't happen. Like I'm like, I'm not gonna sit up here and talk for an hour and a half. But what my goal is is to set kind of mini foundations for people to talk to each other. Because you have to get that verbal experience in order to be able to gain that knowledge experience. It's almost like going to a gym. You have to kind of put the work in to be able to gain the knowledge of what you're going to do. And many times people forget the work that they put in. And part of the work is you verbally have to prepare and train yourself. And so very rarely is it that people aren't talking to each other to learn and sharing out. And I really, you know, when I work by myself or with, or with my friend Victoria, we really work on setting the container. Of, these are the parameters of how we're going to talk to each other about these things. This is the parameters about how you share out. We're not telling you what you can and can't, but what we're saying is that you're not going to be sharing out someone else's personal information because you're uncomfortable with your information. Because that's what we'll tend to see. This will be like, okay, pick one of the prompts and share out. And they'll be like, well, Jackie said this, this, and this. Baby, say it, Jackie, you're Jen. Right. And then they get upset because I'm like, we're Jackie, if Jackie wants to share, Jackie can share, but you're not going to share for Jackie. Mm-hmm. And then they get upset because I'm making them have to share what they did not want to share because their goal is to share someone else's stuff, but to make it look like they're still involved. Mm. And so what I say is, no, you have to share yourself. So which one of these prompts are you talking about? And then you can kind of can get a little flustered because they weren't prepared for that because yeah. maybe the stuff that they said was actually really vulnerable. They didn't want to share it. Right. Then, I was thinking that same thing, Jen, like vulnerability is hard, yeah. right? When you're not practicing it. Yeah. And yeah. so it's it's easier to deflect rather than oh, 100%. You know, owning that and and really responding from your authentic perspective and learning and growing and not getting it right all the time is all part of the process, but people have to get comfortable with that. Well, and and because you start to realize like people aren't used to being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then it it also asks you like about their friend set. Right. Like if you're not practicing being vulnerable with your friend set, who are you practicing it with? Because I think many times folks aren't used to being vulnerable with anybody. And so now not only am I asking you to be vulnerable, I'm asking you to be vulnerable in front of people that you really don't know. And that's really difficult. And so because of that, they aren't going to talk. They're kind of doing this thing of like, I'm just here so I don't get fined. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that aspect of like, you know, I'm just going to literally talk. I'm going to check my phone. I'm going to do those things. And so I'm asking you to share in front of people that you don't know with stuff that you're worried that can come back and bite you. Yeah. And so we set a container of like, here's the deal. You're here. You might as well learn. You might as well be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not going to do it, then, then there's no, like, we have kicked people out. We will kick people out. And I always set that precedent. I'm like, here's the deal. You don't have to be here, but you're also not going to mess with the container. Because what happens is that if I see you not sharing, well, then, and you're a person in power, well, I'm not going to do it. Right? Mm -hmm. If I see you, Jackie, and you're my supervisor, and you're just doing this, well, I'm not going to do it. On my phone. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. I just, I spoke at school, and the, the first thing I say is coaches and staff will not be overseers. You will not be overseers because what we tend to see in when student athletes have mandatory stuff is the coaches and staff will just sit at the top and watch everyone. And they'll be up there and they'll be up on their phone and they'll just be watching everyone. 
And I'm like, absolutely not. And I was doing this one recently. And there was this guy up there. I said, you're either in or you're out. That's your only option. You're in or you're out. You don't, you don't get to decide that you're going to be up there. So you're in or you're out. And if you're out, that's fine. But you're, and you're not going to then sit on the stairs. No, you're in, you're fully in. Yeah. And if I see you're not in, you're going to be asked to leave. And so I tell the coaches, because the coaches will try and like clump themselves in the far corner. This ain't Uh your time, boo. You're in, you are in the middle of the audience. You're talking to student athletes. Uh And it's so funny because the the kid who was like standing up there who didn't want to be in afterwards came up and was like, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Uh You know, I'm starting this program. How do I do it? And it was just funny, but like, once people get in, they enjoy it. I make it in, it's like enjoyably uncomfortable, as, as weird as it is to say. And so, you know, I would say, so once, and to kind of go back to answer your questions, once I kind of start this container and get the container going, they start to, are they able to be more comfortable thinking about themselves in different ways? Mm-hmm. And because of that, the questions that, you know, what one of the prompts I have is, what's the hardest thing about, learning information that goes completely against friends, family, parents, caretakers, K through 12 teachers. Like what's the hardest thing? Because we don't think about that. When you learn something new, you don't think about, I have this new information that goes against what my grandpa says. And -hmm. now I realize my grandpa was really problematic. Mm -hmm. And so their questions are, how do I talk to people? Now that I've learned this information about myself, about X, Y, Z, how do I talk to them? And that's what their question is, is helping them understand that and understand that it's like, I always say it's simple, but it's not easy. Mm, Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is simple to run a hundred meters. It's not easy to win a championship. It's simple. Get out there, you run, but it's not easy. And so this is a thing in theoretical is very simple, Mm -hmm. but it is not easy. Right. Because you're thinking about just, as you said, Jen, you know, all of the things that you've been taught over the years, and now you're getting this information and how do you process this new information mm-hmm. when it mm-hmm. c- contradicts what you grew up believing and thinking, right? So and you have to go back to that house. Yes. You have to go back to that house and hear your parents, hear your uncle say these things. And now you got to sit and rectify, do I implode this relationship with people I love? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, baby, start riot. Start a riot. <laughs> start that riot. Awesome. that Thanksgiving table. I love that. I love that. Jen, tell us a little about, you know, you've done quite a bit of traveling in your life. Talk a little about some of the places that you've been and what your experience has been as a black woman navigating other parts of the world. Oh my gosh. So that goes to my, so my, my PhD is in geography. So I look at the racial experiences of professional black volleyball players in Europe and I look at it from a place and space analysis of like how we feel in these things that are very opaque and not named, but we can name it, right? Jackie, like we can talk about with each other going into the space and being like, nope, this ain't for us. And it's not like there's a sign. It's not like there's someone being like, get out of here, black woman. You can just feel it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, it's this aspect of tying my two loves together, like helping and loving black women. And then also geography and traveling and seeing the world. And I, you know, it's been funny because my partner, he didn't have a passport before we got together. And I was like, I will leave you. You will literally be at home 
and I will be traveling. Like, I just want to let you know. And when he got that, now that he's gotten that passport, you would think he is Carmen San Diego, right? Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Because <laughs> Daniel tries to, to travel as much as possible because he's seen what it feels like and what it looks like. And so I'll start off with my favorite places. My favorite place, I think, on earth is probably Cuba. I love Cuba so much. It is just the coolest place. Yeah. The people, the food, it's just, I love Cuba so mm. much. Also love like Southeast Asia. Love that just because it's so different. The people, the food, the culture, it like, and, and my sister also owns a resort in Bali. So she lives yeah. in Indonesia. Yeah. Half the time. So Sola Villas, if you all want to go to Bali and, and book my sister, Lori, she is phenomenal. She's a, a crazy human, but she's amazing. So I've, I've always had travel kind of in my blood as well. So I think that, but then I think about when I went to like Turkey and Turkey also is one of my favorite, like Istanbul, one of my favorite places, but someone also thought I was a prostitute there. And I was in like leggings and a t-shirt. Right. Oh and so God. from my research, the black women had several instances where walking around, going to their apartment, people thought that they were sex workers. Right. So that was mm -hmm. a common thread in Europe. I would also say China was the hardest for me because like you have to think about China as a country is like 96 percent homogeneous. Mm -hmm. And we're not just saying with like, like maybe like Scandinavian countries where it's like white skin, but people might have blonde hair, black hair. No, it is. China is like homogeneous in terms of skin color, hair color, like, right. Those types mm -hmm. of things, like very homogeneous. And they maybe have never been around a black person, mm. depending on what part of, of China you like, they have maybe seen us on TV. They've never been around. So you go there and in some ways, like from my experience, and other experiences of black women, I know it's, you are just looked at in this wonderment and also scary. I mean, I had this one instance, I was walking and this woman essentially bear hugged me so that she could be in a picture with me for her friend. She grabbed me and I'm like, what are you doing? And then I realized that her friends are with the camera taking pictures of me. Oh my goodness. So like those experiences where it's really, really hard, right, to be in some countries and how you're treated because of this intersect of being a black woman. And so mm -hmm. kind of understanding that context, but like I try and travel as much as possible. That's interesting. Jen, thanks for sharing that. You know, for, for those of us who haven't been able to travel, especially the past few years, you know, it's, it's interesting to understand the difference in how people are treated or embraced or, you know, it's not great, right, around, around the world. Jen, I'm interested in your take on some of the notable racial justice situations in sports and starting, of course, with Colin Kaepernick, what are your thoughts on that situation, how he was treated in that situation? And then we'll get on to some, some other athletes and coaches as well. Well, I mean, I, I think it goes back to the aspect that Black people always have to implode their lives to get justice. Because I, I know you mentioned, we'll talk about Brian Flores. I mean, same thing. These people mm -hmm. have to literally implode their lives. Colin Kaepernick, how he was treated, you know, it was almost like, I think, the approval rating MLK had when he started was like 33%. Mm. And people try and say like, he, people need to be like MLK. MLK was hate, violently hated, obviously because he was assassinated, murdered. He was hated when he was doing the work. He had 33% approval rate. But now he's been whitewashed into this figure that everyone loved during the 60s. No, no, not at all. And Colin Kaepernick, if you see the ebbs and flows, when he kneeled, it was this hatred. How could you do this? Right. But 
the reality is, is that when you're protesting inequalities, you can never do it right. He took a knee. He didn't do anything, you know, egregious. He he did the the quiet protest, but that wasn't good enough, right? Mm. Every, whenever you're protesting, you're always like, you have to do it differently. And what they essentially mean is they move these goalposts so that you're not doing it all, or you're doing it so whitewashed that you're doing the protest in your house with the door shut. That right, like huh. they want everything to be done their way to keep them comfortable. Protest is not meant to be comfortable. Mm. Protest is not meant for you to be feeling good. For like protest is hard, it's ugly. But like we're a country literally built on protest. Yeah. Literally. Mm-hmm. Everything we've done has been through protest. Everything every single aspect. Nothing from marginalized people has ever been done because of morality. And so how he was treated, blackballed, all of that stuff, the NFL is 69.7% black. They don't want any smoke about black people. Right, which is why Colin has been blackballed. And so I think you know what we saw with how he was treated and blackballed, and people are like, Well, he got money. He should. Like, people want protesters and civil rights activists to be dirt poor. Mm. Well, Colin Kaepernick got checked from the NFL, he should have. So you expect this man to turn down millions of of, of money for civil rights? Like they want protesters and, and activists to be dirt poor. How dare we have money or get a check from someone that screwed us? Yeah, absolutely. And then Jen, let's talk a little about LeBron James and and athletes in general that speak out on politics and then the response being, you know, shut up and play ball, right? What are your thoughts there? I mean, I think it's this aspect, like we we had a TV reality person as a president, but you're telling me as an athlete, I can't talk about politics? Mm-hmm. I think it's about power and control of saying you're not smart enough. This you need to do your job and just entertain us and not talk about things above you. And that's all it is. I mean, this aspect of shut up and dribble, shut up and entertain us. Because if any of the white athletes say anything, we're seeing people patting on the back, wait and speak out. But black athletes are expected to stay, stay controlled, stay entertaining us. And that's what you mm-hmm. see with LeBron. Is yeah. that how dare you use your platform for something bigger? You mm-hmm. need to just stay entertain us, do your job, and that's it. Absolutely. And then you mentioned just a moment ago Brian Flores. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? I hope he gets a bazillion dollars and rides off in a damn unicorn. <laughs> I hope uh, Brian Flores, like the most extravagant thing I want Brian Flores to do. I want, like I said, unicorn. I don't even care. Right, like the the Budweiser Clydesdales. Like I want him to ride off into the sunset with all of the money. Like he imploded his career to say what's mm-hmm. happened to me is wrong and it's been done by other people. This is for what the president decades. of our institution for decades. This is what the president of our institution expected me to do. Mm-hmm. This is what the owner, right? Like, so I think that aspect, I appreciate that he did that. Because again, black people have to implode their career to talk about stuff, for things to happen. And he did that. And I think also the fact that the, the Steelers were like, come on, we'll, we'll bring it, come on. That was, I think, a great step of Mike Tomlin. That's how you show, right? What we tend to see sometimes is someone gets fired and they're left on the island. Even though everyone knew what they did was right, they're left on the island. Mm-hmm. Versus t- Michael, like, babe, come on, come on over here. And uh, Mike, I can't some, hire also someone else. Like, that is the biggest show right there. And it's appreciated. And I think that shows, like, we have to implode. And he did that. And he made sure he did it right after a certain day. It was like, here is this information. 
And so I hope he gets all the money because he has yeah. to implode his career. He might not be hired again as a head coach. And he won. Like, that's the worst part is we see these right. losing white coaches keep being hired and this winning black coach ain't getting a job. Totally agree on that. And then what about Brittany Griner? Right. She's in a terrible situation in, in Russia right now. What are your thoughts on her, how we're handling that as a country? Brittany Griner is a black queer woman who literally is a hostage right now, is a political hostage in Russia. And there's really not two shits done about it. If this was Tebow, they would be having like helicopters going to grab him. But a black queer woman is not cared about. And I mean, the fact that there's, she's been there since like February 15th. Yeah. And there's kind of been nothing about it. Like that should be mind blowing. This should be at the top of Biden. This should be like, right at this point, this is our number one priority is getting her out safely and healthy. And the fact that she is, and I think speaks to what it means for black queer women. And I also think that it also needs to name of why women have to go overseas is because women's sports here doesn't pay. And because women's sports here doesn't pay, we're having to go overseas and sometimes put us in potentially bad situations because that's the only way we can get money. Because what happens is so, Many people look at professional sports overseas in the same kind of way that's done here in the U.S., right? That you have like a players association, you have all these rights that if you get injured, they'll pay your contract. If this, that is not the way it is in Europe at all. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is that some of these owners will just decide to start a club because they have billions of dollars. And then what happens is they might go bankrupt. And so you just won't get paid again. Mm -hmm. Or you go and, and the club is closed because there's no money. Or if you're losing, they don't like it. They just won't pay you. So you have these situations. Sometimes, you know, when you travel, you have to get work visas. Sometimes, like, I need an outside hitter for the rest of the season. I'm just going to pay you under the table, and you're here essentially undocumented. So female athletes are being put in these situations because we're not paying here. And what people tend to say is, like, well, women's sports doesn't bring in the revenue. Men's sports didn't bring in the revenue for decades. Mm -hmm. There's a huge wide gap and we have to remember that. So we have to give it time where it's not going to be making a bazillion dollars right at the beginning. And people are like, well, it's not making money after the first year. Well, basketball and football didn't either, but you give them time and then you get the contracts and you, people will watch women's sports if it's on. You can't expect women's sports to not do, to do well if it's not being shown. Absolutely. Well, you know, we'll keep her in our, in our prayers and in our hearts and hope that um, Absolutely. There's a safe resolution for her there. Mm-hmm. Jen, with all of your experience in sports and your experience in DEI, you got a PhD in geography. What inspired you to major in that for your doctorate? It's a, it's a pretty crazy story. I feel like my life is all about crazy stories. So I had done my second master's and I, I just like to learn. I don't mm-hmm. like to really write the papers. I just like to learn. And so I was maybe thinking about a PhD, maybe a third master's. And my friend Danielle was like, you can't, you need to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about getting a PhD at all. And so her mom, Danielle's black, her mom's black. And her mom got her master's and bachelor's in geography at, at Michigan State. She's a medical geographer and her PhD in geography at UNC. And she was like, my mom at, at Michigan State, there's this program called Advancing Geography Through Diversity. You should take a look at it. They're actively recruiting cohorts of native, black, and Latinx people. Because they realized in order to create a pipeline, geography undergrad is so white that you're not going to get the people of color to come from undergrad. You have to start in a different place. So they actively recruit cohorts of native, black, and Latinx people 
to master's and PhD programs and help kind of have some baseline courses to help us out. But I kind of, when I was looking, I applied to like four or five different schools. And really the thing I liked about geography was that sport geography isn't a big thing right now. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like it, it's not, a, you can't major in anywhere. You can't get a bachelor's, master's or PhD anywhere. And mm-hmm. so for me, it was like, I can kind of change this idea of this discipline and really bring it to athletics more and make it more, weirdly enough, athletic centered, especially like black and brown centered, especially the way that I talk about this topic. And so it just gave me opportunity to do something really different that maybe other disciplines, while I can do my thing, not how I wanted to do it with this. And so I was able to create a brand new theoretical framework, create a language guide, do some really, really cool things within it because there was so much space. You know, the joke in academics is people are like trying to find these little little pieces of difference, right? You know, trying to change this little thing of a discipline, really small area where mine was a humongous area and I had to narrow it down. And so that was the really cool thing about it was kind of doing the narrowing down myself on what I wanted to pick and chat about and what was most important to me. And so because I have this love of travel and Mm -hmm. the world, I was like, how can I bring like these two topics together and talk about black women, especially black female volleyball players Mm -hmm. within geography in just a totally different context. Awesome. That's exciting. Well, Jen, as we begin to wrap up our time, tell me what is the message that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Man, this work is uncomfortable and hard and you still got to do it to be, if you want to be a great human, this is the work you have to do. You can't leave it to someone else. I I read something. It was like, we're tired of thoughts. You you can't keep doing the, I'm listening and learning. You got to do like, I'm listening and action. Mm-hmm. because so many, I'm just, I'm just here to listen. Okay. You, I need you to do something with the listening. And because some of this stuff is really unpacking themselves, their friends, their families, that's hard. But if you're going to do the work, you have to do that. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to say, what about me is allowing people to think that they can say these things about around me? Cause that's what it is. If people say all the most reckless things around you, it's because you've allowed that to happen. You've set that culture around you. Yeah. And so this stuff is hard. It's uncomfortable. But if you want to be a great human, you're going to have to learn to unpack yourself to get better at seeing the harm you're doing and what things you need to shift to be a disruptor, to be an accomplice, whatever it is. Absolutely. Well, Jen, thank you so much for taking some time with me today. I really enjoyed the conversation and all of the insights that you shared. How can people get in touch with you, Jen? Yeah, my social media, Jen Fry Talks, is any social media, you see, put Jen Fry Talks and I'm probably there. Uh, my website is jenfrytalks.com. Take a look on it. Email is info at jenfrytalks.com. Literally, just type in Jen Fry Talks, you will find me. <laughs> awesome. Jen, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I appreciate you, Jackie, for having me on. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and review this podcast and share this episode with a friend. Become a part of our community on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson. Join us for our next episode of Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. Take care of yourself and each other.